Song of Solomon, chapter 3 through 5 tonight as we journey through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Sunday morning in the book of Hosea, and again, if you've missed any portions of tonight uh, through this series or through the Minor Prophets, you can see that on our YouTube page as well. And if you're taking note, uh, our podcast had some issues, not sure why, but now that's back on so you can listen to current messages uh, on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So wherever you get your podcast, you can listen to them, subscribe to uh, Calvary Chapel Myrtle Beach. It helps us out. And as well, let me just do another plug while I'm plugging. This message is brought to... No. No. Uh, uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, because we are trying to get to a certain amount of subscribers uh, and then it makes it easier for us to do broadcasting on YouTube. So please go on and subscribe to our YouTube channel if you have not done that. It's funny because we can track uh, on our YouTube and 60 or I think it's 60 or 70% of people who watch us all of the time are sinning by not subscribing. I'm talking to you right now. So subscribe to our YouTube channel. Again, that will help us out. Tonight, Song of Solomon. We'll edit all of that out before. Song of Solomon chapter 3. Let's read a little bit. We'll pray, get into our study. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go into the city into the streets and into the squares, and I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. And the watchmen who go about the city, they found me and said, Have you seen the one that I love? And scarcely I had passed by them when I found the one I love, and I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Now I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our night. And we thank you, Lord, for all those, Lord, watching us, listening to us, Lord. We, we just thank you for the technology. And, Lord, that you would just, again, do a work in our heart now, Lord, as we study the Song of Solomon. And so, Lord, thank you for this book in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you gave it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our third uh, message through this, probably one more uh, through here. Uh, but I wanted to focus your attention. So if you, <laughs> you showed up here, you're like, hey, we're going to go to church at Calvary Chapel Myrtle Beach. Hey, it's the Song of Solomon. So you, you are in the middle of it right now, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the intro and then last week of chapter 1 and 2. But again, this is a, this is a book about uh, a relationship between Solomon and the Shulamite, Mrs. Solomon. Uh, we've talked about that. And, and in fact, tonight we're going to see their wedding, and then we'll see the wedding night. Again, this is a book uh, God isn't ashamed of sex. He talks about it. It is all through here. So I encourage you to pick up those past messages if you have not. Last week, we ended with uh, verse 15, which talked about catching us the foxes, those little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. And then we, uh, and then that great verse, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his and he feeds among the flocks of the lilies. So that takes us now into chapter three, where it would seem that uh, the Shulamite she dreams a lot, and so uh, this is a, another round of her dream, uh, either a daydream or a night dream. But she is dreaming of her bow and of her man. Verse one: By night on my bed I sought the one I love, and I sought him but I did not find him. And so she says, I will arise now. And I said, I will go into the city and into the streets and into the squares, and I will seek the one that I love. 
And I sought him, but I did not find him. Now the watchmen who go about the city found me. And I said, have you seen the one that I love? And again, her affection towards her, her husband. Now scarcely I had passed by them when I found the one I love and I held him and I would not let him go. So she is uh, having this dream. Uh, again, either in the day or the night, really doesn't matter, but she is dreaming of her bow and being with him. And we will see in a second, the dream is specifically to be intimate with him. Look at the, uh, um, look at verse four. It says, scarcely I pass by them. And when I found the one I love, I held him. It would not let him go until I had brought him into the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who had conceived me. So she is uh, declaring the marriage bed there. So her dream is about her finding uh, and capturing again her spouse and bringing him to the marriage bed. Now look at verse 5 again. I had mentioned this several times, and it's all through Solomon this kind of pause through here by the daughters of Jerusalem, it's a, the, kind of the third party in this uh, play. And they say, once again, please na- note this, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And, and what's good about this is <laughs> don't awaken that which cannot be then satisfied. And it has, it has multiple ways to apply it. We talked about this the first time that we heard that. Uh, number one, I just want to keep hitting this point. Um, there is this bond uh, of marriage that really isn't promoted so much in the United States of America, let alone the world. But it is a place where sex is, uh, operates only in that firebox of marriage. Everything outside of that God, well, he frowns upon that. But now, our, as we will see, because by the time we're done, we're going to bring this all full circle again by the end of chapter 5, and we're going to see the devices of Satan. As I was reading a commentary, I thought this was interesting. Uh, one of the commentators said, the, the most important thing that the devil wants to do to a Christian husband and a Christian uh, man is to, number one, isolate their children from them. Just think about that for a second. Satan wants to isolate. He wants to push your children away from you. Push them into the world. Push them into uh, different thoughts. Uh, I have a pastor friend of mine, and he has three kids, and they are not walking with the Lord. Uh, And one of his kids has completely invented this whole reality of his childhood that isn't a reality at all. I know this is going to be a shock. He went to a university. And the people around him, you know, they would say something like, he would say, well, you know, I went to church. Oh, your parents forced you to go to church. Boom, seeds are planted. It's the devil trying to isolate our children from us. Dangerous, isn't it? But also the second thing is, is bringing that uh, contention inside of the marriage between the husband and wife with this topic. And so by not allowing the enemy to get in in the beginning allows a better uh, chance of survival down the road. Verse 5, again, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Uh, I say this all the time. Uh, Just go to sleep. You know, Lord, just wake me up when you... I said this long ago. Uh, when I was in ministry and serving the Lord, I said, Lord, you're going to have to bring me a, a wife and let her uh, hit me with her car, and that'll be the sign. <laughs> uh, and then I'll know, because all I wanted to do was serve the Lord and to, to be into ministry, and I didn't want that other distraction. My daughter and I were talking about this week about the distractions of the world and how powerful they are to pull our attention away from the Lord, away from church, away from anything, and then focus them on our first world problems that we have. 
Again, we should be very careful. And so the daughters of Jerusalem pipe in once again and gives, give us this great warning. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it is time or until it is please, it pleases. Now, verse 6 through um, 11 is the wedding. But you would think, well, shouldn't that have been in chapter 1? Again, that's a Western way of thinking. That's not how Jewish writers write. They go back and forth, so they pivot back and forth between their narratives. And so we've come to the wedding day, verse 6. Let's take a look at it. Who is coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant fragrant powder? So uh, you can remember your wedding day. Maybe uh, you, you got the cleanest you ever got that day. Uh, you were getting <laughs> all kinds of fruity soaps and lotions and things that smell well, and then when you were done, you put more on, right? And so you, it, you could tell that that guy was the, the, the groom. You could smell him way before the aisle, as well as the bride coming down. And verse 7 says, Behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around him, of the valiant of Israel. And they all hold swords, being experts in war, and every man has his sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night. And of the woods of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palaquin, a bed. And he made its pillars of silver and support of gold and its seat of purple and its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So he sets up their bridal suite for them. And again, very common, right, in uh, Jewish uh, tradition and of the day, uh, ladies, you moved in with your husband who had built an addition on his father's house. We don't live in that world today, do we? In fact, in the United States of America, we don't have generational housing, but most of the world still does that. Uh, and it was very common, uh, you better get along with your mother-in-law, yeah? Because you were living literally next door or upstairs. That's what you did. You added on to that. Now, Solomon being the king, he didn't do that. He just built a new palace. So, and that's what he describes there. Verse 11 says, Thou go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. So that is the wedding, very short, not a lot of detail there. <clears throat> Takes us now into chapter 4. Solomon speaking, and he speaks most of this chapter. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind the veil, and your hair is like the flo flock of goats going, going down from Mount Gilead. So, uh, this section describes the first intimacy uh, of the Shulamite and Solomon. So this, they've gone from the wedding to now the wedding, for our purposes, the wedding night, the wedding evening. Uh, and, it, and it is given primarily from the perspective of Solomon. So this is their first experience together. And so uh, he is getting her ready with some words. Now, I know what you're thinking. These are gold men. Uh, I'm going to write down the next time I'm going to write my uh, wife a letter that says, your hair is like goat's hair. Let me tell you, if you do that, you will be in my office the next day. <laughs> or <laughs> you'll take a picture of yourself on the couch. <laughs> Don't do this. <laughs> so again, these are their terms. Amen. This is how they talked back then. We, are, we saw this last week about uh, Solomon t uh, telling her that he, uh, she is like a choice filly, right? Uh, a horse, but we explained that in detail uh, and that he had this um, great amount of horses in his kingdom. And for him, his wife was greater than any other possession 
that he had. So he continues here. Now, I want to say this here. Listen, these are good for us to learn from, both male. And by the end tonight, she pipes in in chapter 5, and she gives, so we've got this. Uh, he is talking about her in these ways of compliments, and then he uh, that she does the same thing in the next chapter. So uh, don't think it is one-sided. It goes back and forth, and you'll see a lot of that uh, through Song of Solomon. Now, uh, so... Uh, <laughs> She's got dove eyes, uh, her hair's like goats, and her teeth, now in verse 2, are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from washing everyone who bears twins, and none is barren among them. Her teeth are white. Why can't you just say that? (laughs) Oh, this is funny. And your lips are like a strand of scarlet. What color is scarlet? Red. Okay, so you have red lips. And your mouth is lovely. And your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Again, pomegranates are red, so perhaps her cheeks are red as well. You could tell that she got all dolled up, right, Uh, for the wedding. Uh, She probably had on... Uh, the best dress that she had, whatever apparel, as well as the gold and the silver, and also she had the makeup. Now, (laughs) I mean, this guy, he knows how to compliment a wife. Your neck is like a tower, the Tower of David, built for an armory, of which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. He's just pouring it on, isn't he? Again, these were terms of endearment for her. Uh, And you have to tailor your terms of endearment for your bride and for your men, as we will see in the next chapter. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twin of gazelles, which feed among the lilies. Now, we talked about this last week. Again, he had already complimented her appearance as well. And yes, he did compliment her breasts. Uh, your two breasts are like two fawns. And the idea here is of innocence. In fact, he is going to mention her garden, and we're going to get to that in a minute, and that of innocence as well. So he's using imagery. uh, And again, we talked about this in the very first study, that the imagery he uses for the body parts are wonderful. Uh, You might have to figure it out every once in a while. But if a child was reading this, the child wouldn't understand at all. But an adult would understand. And so I, I, I just, I love the, uh, the phrases that are used here. Verse 6. Until the day breaks and the shadow flees away, and I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and on the hill of frankincense. Now. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. Now, verse 7. Remember how she described herself in chapter 1? She said that she was dark. She said, "Look, don't look upon me because I have skin, and my brothers made me go work out into the field. And we talked about in this, this day that to have a whiter skin to uh, not be so tanned out there. I mean, think about this. We have gone full circle in our world today, right? Everyone wants to be tan. Everybody's getting spray on tan, especially if you're a president. You'll get that later. Everyone wants, but it's totally reverse. So to, to have lighter skin, what means you weren't out working in the field, that you were pampered and you had a, a privileged life. So notice what he says. He says, you are all fair. So he doesn't see her as dark. He sees her as fair. Why? Because she is about to go into the palace and never go out and work again. And there is no spot in you. Now, verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. So notice He starts to change. He calls her my beloved, my spouse. He'll call her my sister as well. uh, Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon, 
look from the top of Amana and from the top of Sinar and Hermon, Mount Hermon, and from the lion's den and from the mountains of the leopards. For you have ravaged my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravaged my heart with one who uh, looks of your eyes and one link of your necklace. So uh, he is continuing with the compliments and he says to her that she has captured, <coughs> excuse me, his heart. Notice you have ravaged my heart with one look of your eyes. So it was just a look. Now, uh, through uh, Song of Solomon, again, she uh, oftentimes is seeking him out and, and looking to him, and you'll see that it's just a look of the eye, and he's like, yeah, it's time to go in there. And so she does that again. He notices that. Um, verse 10 says, How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse, and how much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfume than all spices. Remember, wine is joy, spices of luxury. So he compliments her on their, um, their relationship is better than the choice wine or any of the, uh, the luxuries that he might have. And by the way, he, as we learn, he had everything. Your lips, my spouse, drip as honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your, dar of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now, verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up and a fountain sealed. So, again, beautifully how God allows Solomon to use imagery. And the garden here is her as we say in our, our family, her privacies. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a way of saying her, her, um, her below-the-belt area. Everybody got that? Trying to be diplomatic. This is all over the world, this message. So note what he says. He says a garden enclosed, and the idea is that it's closed up, he is talking about how she kept herself pure, kept her virginity until that time because he will go on to say that her garden is open and he calls it my garden coming up. So, so he not only compliments her but praises her in that her garden has been left pure. A garden enclosed is my sister, and now he says again, my spouse, and then a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. But as we'll see, but then it will be open. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruit, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all of the trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloe, with all the chief spices, and a fountain of gardens, a well of living water, and a stream from Lebanon. And the idea is that, right, they've had their wedding, and now that which is closed is now open, and he is going to describe uh, again next to us that it is his, that it is open, just like the Bible says in the New Testament that your body is not yours, my, uh, my body belongs to my spouse, and vice versa. So uh, he says in verse 5, now it's a fountain. And what is a fountain? A fountain is refreshing. We don't live in the, that world of the Middle East. Uh, remember, it didn't rain a whole lot, and there were cisterns everywhere to collect the water. And so they would collect the water off of the roofs or wherever they could collect the water. When it rained, it went into the cistern. But by month June or July, you didn't want to drink out of that cistern because it, as the King James says, it stinketh. And so always the preferred was a fountain. And again, of living water. That's why through uh, the uh, through Israel, there are all these springs all around. And when you go with us to Israel, we stop at a bunch of the springs so that you can see 
how important those springs coming out of the water, uh, out of the rock is. It's living water. So he is describing his wife's body parts as living water and streams from Lebanon. The idea is of refreshment. Now, verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out, and let my beloved come to his garden. So notice what she says. So now this is the first time she speaks in this chapter. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and to eat of its pleasant fruit. So she is, like we've seen uh, in chapters past and we will see in the future, she is inviting him to partake and to enjoy, as verse 15 said, the living water and, and, and have uh, that sexual relation. Verse 1, chapter 5. Now he comes back, and he says, I have come to my garden. Notice he describes it as his garden now, my sister, my spouse. Now that's important because you can't have sexual relations unless it is my spouse. This is uh, what's great about this book. It keeps reinforcing that sex is only in that bonds of that firebox within marriage. So I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse, and I've gathered my myrrh and my spice, and I have entered and I've eaten my honeycomb with honey, and I drink my wine with milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. So again, it's the celebration of that intimacy together. Verse 2. Now she... uh, Well, let's just get into it. I was going to describe something else. Verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awakened. It is the voice of my beloved. For he knocks, saying, open uh, for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Boy, he is pouring it on. For my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of night. Let me just read this whole section. We'll come back, put it into context. For I have taken off my robe, she says. How can I put it back on? Well, that's pretty easy. I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Well, that's why we have carpet, amen? (laughs) Different time. My beloved has put his hand to the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. For I arose to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handle of the lock. And I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away, and he was gone. And my heart leaped up when he spoke. And I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And the watchmen who went out on the city, they found me, and they struck me, and they wounded me, and the keepers of the wall took, off, took my veil away from me. And so I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am lovesick. And what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? And what is your beloved more than another beloved? that you so charge us. So we get into a scene here. I know this is going to be a shocker. uh, But again, God does not sugarcoat the subject of sex in this book at all. He knows that along with the delight of sexual intimacy comes difficulties as well. Up to this point, the song has shown us kind of the ideal of marriage, right? It, It looks kind of perfect. But if you've been married for five seconds, you know that that isn't the case at all. That there is going to be difficulties and there's going to be realities of life because life is just life. It happens. This chapter deals with the topic of sexual selfishness. 
And selfishness, as we will soon discover, is one, uh, as we will see, one of the greatest enemies of intimacy. The first one who is selfish, uh, by the way, there are two people in this story that are selfish. The first one that is selfish in this story, have you figured it out yet? Let me read it again. I sleep, but my heart is awakened. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head, here's the clue, is covered with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I I apologize, but every time I read that verse, I think of uh, the guy who, I can't believe it's not butter. He's got the, this flowing locks, and he's knocking, and it's this image, right, uh, of, what is it, Fabio, isn't it? And now I'm going to get flagged on YouTube for that. He'll want some royalties. So the first one who is selfish is Solomon. He's the first one who is selfish. He is coming to his missus at an hour that is obviously too late. This is going to create a problem, as you see. That's why we read the whole section together. So he is creating a problem. He is not sensitive to her, obviously, sleep. Now listen, there is a lot in here, and I want to get through it, because when I get to verse 9, I'm going to wrap this whole section up so so we'll understand this topic of sexual selfishness. So she is obviously in verse 2, have you seen it? She is asleep. And so he has been out doing king's business. I don't know what kings do, but obviously it's a late night. He is out. He comes and he knocks. By the way, have you ever wondered why he is knocking on the door? Uh, This, as well as... uh, uh, the royals or any other, no one slept uh, in the same bed together. They had separate chambers. I know what you're thinking to yourself. That's a wonderful plan. <laughs> I like the, I'm going to get my own twin. Remember the Brady Bunch in the beginning? That was scandalous because uh, they slept in the same bed. This was in the 70s. Before that, it was all betrayed with double beds. And this was very common that they would have their own chamber but they would come together for their sexual union. <clears throat> so, he knocks on the, do- the door. She is obviously asleep, right? Now, ladies, you're thinking to yourself, come on, man, it's at night, I'm asleep, I just dealt with the kids, I just dealt with this, the dog threw up, and you want what? Isn't that what it is? Remember, this is a real book. This is real life. Took a while to get to real life, didn't it? (laughs) But we got to it. This is real life. She says in verse 3, she says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Now, through the the songs, again, it's been this blissful time, and now we see real problems. So it starts off with him, but now, and I, and I don't want you to throw anything at me or write letters, but it seems now she starts in with her excuses as well. So we're going to see this go back and forth, and I want to play it all out before, before you get real upset at me. It seems like excuses are the norm uh, in most houses. This is not to say that all of them are wrong, But when it becomes a pattern, then resentment and hurt will settle in. That's the point of that. And we're going to get to this. It's not about who is right and who is wrong. Obviously, ladies, you know that he is wrong. And any good man knows that he's wrong. So he is insensitive to her, but then also she is as well. But notice what happens in verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch of the door. But what happens to her? 
my heart yearned for him. I want, to, I want you to see this. Even though by right he could come in, but there is a great principle here. No man should force himself on his wife with sexual relations. Most men want to be invited by their wife to partake of the garden as we saw in the last chapter. And she'll say that again. No man should force himself. So there is a principle here where we see Solomon is selfish in the beginning, but he doesn't force himself in, uh, upon her and upon the situation. Even though by right, remember we said in the New Testament that your body is not yours and it's your husband's and vice versa. So by right, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's right for the moment or for the time. But, she, now her heart leaps. So she is stirred up, and now she is awakened. Now it says in verse 5, that I rose to open the door for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handle of the lock. So let me get to the last part of that verse, and then I'll get to the first part. So uh, when she reaches for the handle, it's got uh, spices and myrrh. His hands were coated with that. So she goes to reach for the door, and now, again, it's an aphrodisiac. He is bringing a pleasant smell to her. But she does get up. She arose to open for my beloved. It wasn't that the maiden refused to open the door for her beloved, it was that she was long and delayed in doing so. And the delay out of maybe self-interest or self-indulgence, uh, obviously she, she was sleeping, she was tired, but it, it can also be of resentment. Maybe she's tired that he keeps coming at that hour and bothering her sleep pattern. We're going to get to, and what we've talked about, is that servant lover, is to be servant uh, oriented, thinking about others. And it's a great illustration of Solomon who, uh, again, nothing wrong with his desire for his wife, but it was done at the wrong time, perhaps maybe with the wrong motive. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Six, and I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away And he was gone. And notice her response. She doesn't go, Woo! Dodged another one. She didn't do that, did she? It says, I'm sorry, I just lost where I was. She said, uh, My heart leaped up. The idea she was disappointed that he was gone. My heart leaped up when, I, when he spoke, and I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And then the watchmen who went out about the city found me, and they, stru- and they struck me, and they wounded me, and the keepers of the wall took my veil away from me and said, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved that you tell him that I am lovesick. So let him know that I was looking for him. Now in verse 9, it says, What is your beloved more than another beloved, or fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you so charge us? The heart of this passage may or may not be clear to you, but it is a little bit clear. Think about your mate's needs and respond accordingly. Solomon, he didn't do this. The solution to the problem of selfishness isn't identifying who is right and who is wrong. We love to do that. You're wrong, I'm right. No, I'm right, you're wrong. That's not the point of the, of the section here. The solution is is found in your willingness to consider your spouse's need as more important than your own. Servant loving always involves placing your spouse's needs first and continually looking for ways to be sensitive 
and look at life through their eyes. Solomon didn't do that, did he? I mean, he was coming in at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. I don't know what was going on, what hoot and handy he was at. But he wasn't sensitive to his wife who was sleeping, was he? So he had missed an opportunity to leave her alone that night. Think about her. In your sexual relationships, don't let uh, selfishness rule. God asks you to be more humble and to think of your spouse as more important than yourself. So think about what your spouse desires and how then you can please them. Let me read to you from Gary Thomas. He has a great book that's called Sacred Marriage. I'm going to read to you a couple of quotes through this section. He suggests that you ask yourself these important questions. Number one, is sex something I'm giving to my spouse or withholding? Is sex something I am demanding or offering? Is sex something I am using as a tool of manipulation or it is an expression of general uh, generous giving? Again, what am I doing it for? Now, from the book that we have out here, from Intimacy Ignited, in, in what areas of your relationship are you prone to selfishness? Because <clears throat> that's what this section is teaching us. It's teaching us about selfishness inside a relationship. <clears throat> are you prone to any of the following, they ask? Number one, sexual rejection or a demanding spirit, maybe. How about insensitivity? Solomon was certainly that, was he not? He had a little bit of a demanding spirit. How about an unloving attitude or a discouraging attitude or a critical attitude? Again, most marriages die from selfishness than from any other reason. James chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battles within you? Your desire, but you do not have? James tells us exactly where selfishness comes from. Again, selfishness is the internal enemy of intimacy, and Satan is the external enemy of intimacy. He laughs when he sees selfishness in your intimate encounters, and he thinks that he has won, and he's done a very good job. So, how do we fight? against selfishness what we become especially in this section a servant lover again a servant lover are givers those who regard their spouses as more important than themselves jesus tells us to be others centered to wash the feet to look out for the better interest of others remember the slave's job was to make someone's life better Paul calls himself a doulos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Again, selfish lovers are takers, those who demand their own way, their own right, like Solomon tried to do. If a wife is beyond exhaustion, what is the loving thing for her husband to do? Well, obviously, we're learning that from Solomon. If a husband is under great stress and needs space or intimacy, what is the loving thing for the wife to do? Again, our selfishness needs to be replaced by sacrifice and selflessness. Lastly, quoting from that book, whether sexually becoming uh, becomes a celebration of service or a point of contention, depends largely on one or both parties' selfishness. I thought that was wonderful. Well, now verse 10, 10 through 16. Now it is Mrs. Solomon's opportunity to praise her husband. And I want you to see this because um, often, right, we're taught, and rightfully so, ladies, you, you need to hear I love you. You need to hear all these affirmations. But it also is good to know that, ladies, you need to do the same thing. And you need to do it in a way 
that makes him feel like he's a Superman. I mean, if he's out there cutting the grass and it's 1,000 degrees in summertime in Myrtle Beach, right? How is he built up or is he, can, he, is, is he always torn down? Because she gives an example here of building her husband up, also building him up around other people, not tearing him down. Ladies, don't ever tear your husband down in front of another group of ladies. Don't ever do it. Don't ever do it in public. You want to destroy your husband faster than anything else? Do that publicly. She gives a great example of what to do. And so, my beloved is white and ruddy. He's a man's man, she says. Chief among 10,000. Remember that he, uh, uh, when he spoke of her, he said that she was a lily among the thorns. Remember that? She does the exact same thing. She says, you stand out. You're chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. <laughs> then we're getting back to the locks again. His locks are waving, and they're black as a raven, right? He's dreamy. She's talking about his what? His appearance. She's going to keep noting his appearance. I think this is lost today as well. It always seems to be one side of the aisle that wants the praise and the adoration and the words of affirmation, but the wife fails to realize that the man craves that just as much, but often isn't spoke as much. When was the last time you heard a pastor tell the wives, hey, tell your husband how good looking he is? Doesn't happen a lot, does it? Notice, <laughs> His eyes are like doves. So apparently they are into birds, this couple. <laughs> a lot of birds going on here. <laughs> and you can imagine that right from me. I, I, in, when I envision his room, there's like bird cages. This pretty wealthy guy, right? Had his own zoo, had his own <laughs> uh, giraffes and elephants. This guy had his own zoo. It was crazy. So his eyes are like doves. They're dreamy by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. He's proportionate, she says. <laughs> Everything lines up perfectly on his face. His cheeks are like a bed of spices. Remember, this is her speaking about him, telling him how important she, uh, that he is to her. His cheeks are like bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are like lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. So not only does um, his, his hair is good, he, he is above uh, 10,000 other men, uh, but he smells good as well. His hands are rods of gold set with burl, and his body is... <laughs> is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. This guy's a statue. He's chiseled. <laughs> His legs are like pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. And his countenance is like Lebanon, excellent in his cedars. Again, she is complimenting him from his head down to his toes. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So again, in this section, the woman does the complimenting on her man and on his appearance. She, she uses words of affirmation and words to esteem him highly and to build him up, not to tear him down. We've already seen Solomon do this. We've seen it go back and forth. It's not just one-sided. When it comes to his beloved, and now we see his wife in turn encouraging and bragging about her husband. 
Ladies, when was the last time you bragged about your husband? Well, you don't know my husband. Find the good in that. Remember last week we were talking about how ladies, you, um, not all, please don't send me letters. Uh, you find uh, you have body issues and you focus on that and it's negative. And we talked about how there was a quote from one of the commentaries that the lady said, hey, I find that one area, I focus on that, and I tell my husband about that's the area, right? So that he could encourage her in those areas. If your husband is whatever, and obviously not like King Solomon, but find something that you like about him. Man, I really like your earlobes. You've got a big toe like no man. I don't know what it is. Find that out. Do you, do you get that? Again, we've already seen Solomon do this. Solomon does a lot about this. And so it's the wife's turn to encourage and brag about her husband. Husbands want to hear good things from their wives. It's not just women who need this. They want to hear that they are strong and that they are the protector and that you are excited about his prowess. That's what Miss Solomon does. And she lets everyone know. I mean, we're reading it now, right? Because if we get to heaven and Solomon's this kind of frumpy guy, I'm going to be disappointed. That's false advertising, lady. The point is finding something. She found it. She looked upon it. She encouraged. She strengthened her husband. She didn't tear him down. So what a wonderful section that we learn from on selfishness. Read ahead. She continues with her daydreaming or night dreaming, not sure where. She has another dream. And then we continue. We, we Looks like we will finish uh, the book of so- uh, Song of Solomon for next week. So read ahead, 6, 7, and 8. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. <clears throat>